This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. On this special edition of the podcast, we're looking back at some of our most memorable episodes of 2021. This year saw a lot of big sports news for Georgia, including this fall when the Atlanta Braves defeated the Houston Astros, winning their first World Series title since 1995. When the Braves clinched a trip to the series with a win against the Dodgers in the NLCS, Truist Park erupted. Here's a 1-0. And on the ground, Swanson, he's got it to his feet, throw the first, down it is! The Atlanta Braves are going to the World Series! The Braves' historic title sparked celebrations among sports fans across Georgia. But the state also lost a hometown baseball legend this year, Hank Aaron. Aaron died January 22nd at the age of 86. It would be difficult to overstate Hank Aaron's impact on not just baseball, but on the entire country. Aaron is, of course, most well-known for breaking Babe Ruth's home run record in 1974. NPR contributor and ESPN writer Howard Bryant wrote a biography of Aaron called The Last Hero, A Life of Henry Aaron. Bryant said Aaron's journey from Mobile, Alabama to baseball's Hall of Fame was a long and complicated one. I remember one day Henry and I were in, in Cooperstown, and he had told me, I don't think I spoke to a white person until I was 18 years old. I was like, what? And he really said, it. I don't believe, obviously, there might have been a yes, hello, maybe, no, something like that, one word responses. But I, he said, I don't think I actually had a full person-to-person conversation with a white person until he was playing in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And that gives you, that gives you an idea of what life in Mobile was like. We've heard these stories so many times about the colored water fountains and the white water fountains and the colored restrooms and all the segregation. Do they still have impact? Do they still mean something? Because we've heard about them so many times and time has removed us from it. Can we try to understand what life in Mobile was like in terms of the, the hope? And somebody who is as as ambitious as he was and somebody who had an idea that he was actually really good at something. In fact, at genius level. I remember talking to Ed Scott, the old scout who signed Henry, and that Henry's mother, Stella, used to get mad at Ed Scott because he kept coming around the house. And she says, you know, get away from my son. Why do you keep coming around here? And Ed walked up to her and said, Mrs. Aaron, I don't think you know what you have over there. And she's, he's trying to say, you've got a child who is a genius at this. He's world-class. Henry, in those years, in the late 30s, early 40s, when he would talk about wanting to, to, to use that talent, his father and his brother would tell him, you're colored. I never, I never played with, with a white player until I got to Eau Claire, really. And Eau Claire was a farm club of the Milwaukee, was the farm club of the Braves as a class C ball club. That was the very first time I've ever, I ever played with white players. Before then, I played in the Negro League, and then before that, I played in Carver Park, which was all black, you know. So I, I never had the experience of playing with white players until I got into professional baseball. What was it about baseball to him? What what was the appeal? Baseball is a is an, is the most individual of team sports. 
if you're self-sufficient, which Henry was, if you're independent, which Henry was, if you're a, a self-starter, which Henry was, I can't help you in baseball when it's when when it's Sandy Koufax on the mound and you're in the in the batter's box. Nobody can help you. It's you versus the pitcher. This is on me. I'm either going to make it or I'm not going to make it. And combined with his ability, with that hand-eye coordination, baseball was a perfect sport for him. We talk about Henry Aaron being a young phenomenon. He played in the Negro Leagues and then the Milwaukee Braves bought out his contract for, what, $10,000, which must have been the bargain of the century. It went into extra innings the night the Braves won the pennant. Two out in the 11th. Logan on base, Hank Aaron steps in against the third Cardinal pitcher of the game, Billy Muffet. Here it comes. And there it goes. Hammer and Hank hits a home run, and this one is special. The Braves hit it. 1956, in just his second or third year with the Milwaukee Braves, one of the biggest magazines in the whole country at the time, the Saturday Evening Post, sends out this young writer to profile Henry Aaron. And the writer's name is Furman Bisher, who Atlanta residents will remember him as you know, a, a sports writer and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for decades. And in your book, you called the story that Furman Bisher wrote for the Saturday Evening Post a devastating piece of journalism. So what, what made it devastating? Well, what made it devastating was the common and casual racism that was in it. What really made it devastating wasn't just that it was so horribly racist. It was that that piece became the standard for how people viewed Henry. And what were the characteristics that, that Furman Fisher portrayed? Well, the characteristics will obviously vary. The sort of minstrel character is, he, you know, he shuffled when he walked and he, you know, he wasn't very bright, but he was sort of this baseball savant who couldn't necessarily spell his name, but boy, could he hit. And all of those different types of stereotypes and prejudices that were, that were common. And these are the things that Henry especially once you get to know him or once he became prominent and as his career would continue you would see the impact of what that of how that would affect someone like henry who was so proud and so he was quiet absolutely but he he had an unbelievable sense of himself and to be so caricatured like that at that time and not only that but let's not forget what america was in 1956 you're in the middle of the montgomery bus boycott You're in the, the civil rights movement is on its way. It's coming. Everything is happening right then and there. To be written about in that way was humiliating. And it was also normal. That was the other thing. There was no criticism of that piece. There was no there there, there was no condemnation of Herman Bisher. Herman Bisher was not the anomaly. He was the he was not the exception. He was the rule. impressive skyline supplemented by this magnificent circular stadium is in a delirium of enthusiasm today to celebrate her attainment to big league city status. The Braves are here and it's opening day. 
when the Braves franchise moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta, Henry Aaron did not want to go. He did not want to return and live in the South. No, well, he knew what was down there. He knew what it was, and he and he did not feel also that major that that baseball back then, organized baseball, was going to protect him. And didn't he didn't want to go back into segregation. He didn't want to go play in a segregated stadium. And so the negotiations that were taking place were incredible at an incredible, incredibly high level. I remember sitting there with, with uh, Ambassador Andy Young and, and Ambassador Young was saying how so many civil rights leaders met with, with Henry and he would tell them how he didn't feel like he was holding up his end and telling, him how he, telling them how he didn't want to go back to Atlanta and they were assuring him that all of these safeguards were going to be put in place and that something remarkable was happening and that he was going to be in the center of the civil rights movement. And it really is sort of fascinating what happens to the Henry Aaron story if he's not in the middle of the civil rights movement? This being in Atlanta in 1965-66 really turned Henry Aaron into the social figure, the bigger than baseball figure that he ended up becoming. You speak in your book, too, about at least uh, before moving to Atlanta, that he did not want to be considered, quote unquote, an agitator. Um, and, and then you also talk about how he was flipping through the television one night and came upon James Baldwin um, as a guest on a talk show. There was something about James Baldwin that that resonated with him, that that spoke to him. What was that? It was the everything that Henry had been thinking and feeling. Here's James Baldwin on television. I believe it was 1962 or 63. Civil rights movement is is right in the middle of it. You're sitting there and you're saying, and this is the thing, this is the gift of Baldwin. How many of us have read James Baldwin and felt like he was talking to us directly? The truth is the Negroes have been fighting for, for this hundred years to obtain their rights. But in, in, and the country has ignored it. And the technique of the country has mainly been to accommodate it or to contain it, but never really to change the situation. And what has happened in our time in these last few years is that it's no longer possible to contain it. And the technique of accommodation has broken down. For the first time, really, the situation is now in the open, and no American can ignore it. I think Henry had that feeling as well, that here is your situation, here is the basic questions of fairness, here are the basic questions of being an American, here are the things we don't, we're not afforded. And the way that Baldwin could articulate them so clearly and so passionately, that was a crystallizing moment because these questions are now front and center in the culture. And, uh, and I'm not going to be shy about saying my piece. Here's Henry Aaron in a 2002 interview on NPR's The Tavis Smiley Show. Well, the year that I was chasing Babe Ruth's record, uh, of course, I received more letters than, say, the president did one single year. And most of them was hate mail. I had a daughter at Fisk University and she was forbidden from going out of her classroom. You know, she owned campus for a year and a half. Uh, I had to have Secret Service people traveling with me all year. I used to slip out of the back of baseball parks. Uh, I stayed aside from my teammates. My teammates would stay in one hotel. I had to stay in another one. So it was really a, a year and a half. I would say it was probably one of the toughest things I had to try to break a record. And most of it, most letters that I received, was from, from people that was very hateful. They, it was very vicious. 
How important was his philanthropy to him? Because he was very much a prominent figure in philanthropic circles here in Atlanta. Huge. He and I were talking one day about breaking the record. And he said, one of the things, one of the most important things about breaking that record was that now people were going to listen to you. And if they were going to listen to you, then you could use that voice to do things for other people, especially some young black kids that just didn't have that voice. And that was extremely important to him. He was so pleased with the life he had lived. It's hard to articulate, but when you read how bitter people said he was, and then what I remember about Henry was the fact that he was always smiling and always laughing and always giving and always conciliatory and always listening. There was no longer a question about where he stood. Just before Christmas, Georgia lost longtime Republican U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson. But Isaacson wasn't the only U.S. Senator from Georgia to die this year. In November, Max Cleland died of congestive heart failure at his home in Atlanta. He was 79. Cleland was a Democrat and lifelong public servant in a variety of roles, including U.S. Senator and head of the Veterans Administration under President Jimmy Carter. Jim Galloway, a now-retired Atlanta Journal-Constitution journalist, said Cleland's politics were heavily influenced by his military service. Cleland lost three limbs in the Vietnam War. Much of the coverage of his death, of course, is mentioning prominently those attack ads that ran against him when he was uh, running for re-election in 2002, un- unsuccessfully, as it turned out. But I, I want to talk about that. But first, I- I'd like our listeners to better understand Max Cleland as someone who withstood almost unimaginable injuries in Vietnam as a young man. What what exactly happened to him on that day in April 1968? It was just a few days after Martin Luther King had been assassinated on the other side of the world. His team had just disembarked from a helicopter, and he he saw a grenade on the ground, a live grenade. After a private had dropped a grenade getting out of a helicopter, Cleland went to grab it to toss it away from other soldiers, but it went off, taking three of his limbs with it. He very nearly killed him right there. His right arm and right leg were were severed immediately. He soon lost his, his left leg. A, a Marine took off his ammunition belt and tied it around his left leg, which kind of saved him from, from bleeding to death. Now, Senator Cleland, he thought for years, didn't he, that that grenade had been his, that he had dropped it somehow. This is the thing about Max, is he was not a hero of Vietnam, and he never considered himself a hero of Vietnam. And I didn't want to avoid the war of my generation. I mean, yeah, I knew this was going to be big. And as a history major, you know, these defining moments in American history come along uh, every now and then. And if you really want to learn about it, you really uh, hope to be part of America in the future, you better get in there and understand it so you can be a good leader afterward. That Marine who, who saved his life was the one who told him, I think it was in 1999, that no, it was that the that, that grenade didn't fall off uh, Max's belt. It fell off the belt of a newbie. That was a small comfort. So he comes home after months of recovery now at Walter Reed Hospital outside Washington. Years, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. He loses both his legs. He loses his right arm. And then he's back in his parents' house, and he's still just a young man in his late 20s. And he's looking around, and I mean, I saw him in a quote to to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution a few years ago, saying to himself, I've got no job offers, I've got no girlfriend, no future, no hope. 
What did he do? He was always interested in politics from, I mean, from, from his college years. I mean, he was, in, in a way, he was kind of the, the consummate Southern politician in that he conceived of military service as the way to get there. So he, he stuck with that plan. He won a, a seat in the state Senate. And uh, I think at the time he was the youngest member there. He did it on a, a pair of artificial legs and crutches. The Republicans in 2002 kind of run the table. I mean, Sonny Perdue defeats the incumbent Roy Barnes to become the first Republican governor of Georgia in over well over a century. What is the impact personally, I guess emotionally, psychologically, on Max Cleland? Yeah, I mean, and, he, and he wrote about this. I mean, he was sent into a tremendous tailspin of depression. This is probably when we started hooking up together a little bit, just just as as, as friends. You know, he he felt he felt so wounded. We would often often sit down and, and talk about the, what we called the black dog. What was the black dog? That was depression. That was the, the the creature that sits on your shoulder and says all is lost. Where did you fear that that might take him? Uh... I think it's something that you saw that he was working through. How did he do that? In 2017, uh, Ken Burns had the, the documentary on Vietnam. And the voice you heard on that was that of Max Cleland. Victor Frankel, who survived the death camps in World War II, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. You know, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in suffering. And for those of us who suffered because of Vietnam, uh, that's been our quest uh, ever since. He was very big into philosophy, especially uplifting philosophy. Maybe two years ago, maybe three, we went uh, about the process of, of replacing Max's bed, and he had cut off the, the legs so that it would, it would match the height of his wheelchair so he could get in and out of it all right. So he, he asked me to find a way to carve into wood a quote from Patrick Overton. And the quote is, when we walk to the edge of all the light we have and take the step into the darkness of the unknown, we must believe that one of two things will happen. There will be something solid for us to stand on, or we will be taught to fly. I, I had it carved on a piece of his, his bed frame for him. I did have one thing added to the back of the piece. And those, that was, those were the letters MCSH. Max Cleland slept here. Max had a great sense of humor. He loved it. Bound to a wheelchair most of his adult life, Cleland was gregarious and upbeat. Known for wearing a Mickey Mouse watch as a reminder, he said, Good morning, Senator. Good day to go to work. Not to take life too seriously. We're talking about sort of those dark days after uh, his loss in 2002. And I understand that as part of his recovery, he, he actually attended um, meetings at Walter Reed. Uh, with other other people who are going through post-traumatic stress. Did, did he ever talk about that? Well, and he had a group here in Atlanta, too. There was a, a tight circle of veterans that he would connect with here. What did that mean to him? I was never in the military, and it was important for him to be around people who did understand that language. And, and I think the continued camaraderie helped him. 
Jim, you, you knew Max Cleland for many, many years uh, as we reflect on him in his life now. What's sort of the the most prevailing memory or thought that you have about him that, that will stick with you forever? It's the image of a, a fellow who would never give up. I mean, after he lost the Senate, he went to work for the Export Import-Export Bank. He was he was head of the Battlefield Memorial Association. He wanted to go out on a high note. His hope was that Hillary Clinton would be elected president in 2016, which would allow him to preside over the 75th anniversary of D-Day and Normandy. That didn't happen. But he, he kept on going. You know, he, he was the kind of fellow who lost a lot in 1968 and decided he wasn't going to lose much more. He was going to live it out. The physical image of, of Max Cleland that I'm going to have in my, my head the rest of the, my life is that of a 75-year-old man with one arm hauling himself into his own Cadillac and out of it again. It was an everyday thing, and I, I just don't think that people realize the heroism that was in that. This year also saw the dramatic trial of three white men for the 2020 killing of Ahmaud Arbery, who was black. In this episode, we revisit our conversation with a journalist who has reported on the killing of Arbery and the killing's aftermath longer than anyone else, Brunswick News reporter Larry Hobbs. Larry covered every twist and turn of the Arbery investigation and the highly anticipated trial, which culminated in November in guilty verdicts for all three defendants, Travis McMichael, his father, Greg McMichael, and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan. The men were accused of chasing and fatally shooting 25-year-old Arbery in February 2020 as he jogged in a neighborhood just outside Brunswick, Georgia. Hobbs told us that Arbery's death and the trial have taken a major emotional toll on Brunswick and Glynn County. The biggest example of how, how much this touched the community was our clerk of courts, Ron Adams, clerk of superior court, sent out a thousand jury summonses. And literally it was a two and a half week ordeal to pick a jury. And everybody knew about this. Everybody had an opinion. And so as the trial kicked off, as the jury was finally impaneled early November and opening arguments began, what was it like? This was a very graphic, very grueling trial. There was a video screen up throughout most of the trial showing evidence, and a lot of it was graphic, ghastly. The video that that Roddy Bryan shot on the day that the killing occurred. You know, that's just one of them. The police body cam footage immediately after was shown, and I don't know how many people have seen that. I know I saw it. It's pretty tough to watch, too. And, of course, when the George Bureau investigations lead coroner came in, he showed the pictures of uh, Ahmad's body during the autopsy, and that was, words escaped me. It, it, it was tough, and I know it had to be tough on the Arberries. Marcus Arbery got up and left, went out into the lobby when the, the coroner was there. Marcus Arbery being Ahmad's father. And Wanda Cooper Jones, his mom, stayed in, but uh, she just kept her eyes covered. Eleven of the 12 jurors were white, 
and this is in a county that's roughly 26% black. So as you sat there towards the beginning of the trial for opening arguments, what impact did you think that that particular jury makeup might have in terms of an eventual verdict? You, you got to think here in the deep south, uh, southern gothic, uh, here we go again. And the judge said, you know, he was certain that the defense finagled to get that jury. Attorneys are going back and forth on the potential jurors, which the state has complained to the court were struck by the defense from the final panel because solely of their race. 11 black jurors were struck from what would have been the final pool. And the judge said, it, it is what it is. We start trial tomorrow. And Linda Donikoski was the Cobb County prosecutor who was brought in to actually prosecute this case because of all the issues with prosecutorial uh, conflicts of interest in Glenn County. Yes, sir. Greg McMichael, the father of Travis McMichael, who was in that first pickup truck, is a former investigator for the DA's office here uh, in Brunswick County. He's also a former police officer. So first, the DA here in Brunswick County recuses themselves. Then the case went to Waycross Circuit District Court, and the attorney there recuses himself, but not before he writes a letter that says the actions were perfectly, quote, perfectly legal. It was at that point that the case went to a 17-year veteran, of the Cobb County DA's office, Linda Donikowski. That's how she ended up taking the case. So the central argument of the defense, Larry, was Georgia's citizen arrest law, which really is a vestige from slavery days that effectively allowed citizens, in practice, we're talking about white people here, to, to deputize themselves to capture escaped enslaved people. So in the wake of Arbery's killing, state lawmakers vetoed the law, but because it was still in effect at the time of the killing, the McMichaels and Brian were allowed to invoke it in their defense. We have three white men chasing down a, a black jogger, Ahmaud Arbery, and attempting or saying they're attempting to detain him because they suspect him of breaking into houses. So you would think, or at least I did, I mean, that race, because it was such a central part of the discussion around this killing, would be a central part of the prosecution's case but it really wasn't mentioned by the prosecutor, uh, Linda Donikowski, really until closing arguments. Did that surprise you? It surprised me. It, it did a little bit. I, I think she thought, though, that she could win this case just when, uh, you know, the verdict from the jury, just from the interpretation of the law. The law said you had to be aware that a felony was going on. We have... Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael on a body cam being told by Glenn County Police Officer Robert Rash, no, he has not stolen anything. The times he had, there were four times at that point, had gone in and been detected on this camera at 220 Satilla Shores, where this all begins. Greg McMichael told police, you know, I don't know what he's doing, but he, he sure seemed like he was doing something. He was hauling ass past his house and running so fast that he must have done something wrong. What is the next question that you asked Greg McMichael? Did this guy break into a house today? And what did Greg McMichael say in response from line eight to line 13? Well, that's just it. I don't know. They had no proof that he had committed a crime. Here's Linda Dunikoski cross-examining Travis McMichael. And at this point in time, when you first see him on Burford, he's not reaching into his pockets. Run, no mail, not running, no mail. And he never yelled at you guys? No mail. Never threatened you at all? 
No, ma'am. Never ver- brandished any weapons? Yeah, he did not threaten me verbally. No, ma'am. All right. Didn't pull out any guns? No, ma'am. Didn't pull out any knife? No, ma'am. Okay. Never reached for anything, did he? Uh, no. He just ran? Yes, he was just running. It was there in the testimony, and I think Ms. Donikoski said we don't have to bring up that this was a racial issue, that they simply did not meet the criteria even of the uh, citizen's arrest law. And the house that we're talking about, 220 Satilla Shores, was a house that was under renovation. It was vacant, but it was kind of open uh, because of the work going on in there. And Ahmaud Arbery was captured on a security cam several times walking through that house. And they show him, and that is all he does. He's just walking around. He's looking, you know. I know his, his uncle told me one time that in addition to working with his dad's landscaping company, he did a little construction work. So maybe he was just checking things out. We don't know what he's doing. We do know that he didn't steal anything. He didn't harm anything. He just walked around and left. There were a lot of dramatic moments, Larry, in this trial. We had Travis McMichael taking the stand in his own defense. And one of the most shocking, to me anyway, was in closing arguments when uh, the defense attorney made some really startling comments about Ahmaud Arbery, referencing his dirty toenails. And I remember seeing that and hearing an audible gasp in the courtroom. Turning Ahmaud Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmaud Arbery to Satilla Shores in his khaki shorts, with no socks, to cover his long, dirty toenails. What were some of the moments that stuck out to you? The long, dirty toenails comment, everybody just went, wow, really? She said that. The going story was that she was trying to make a reference to that he was not a jogger, that he was in there for nefarious reasons because he had long, dirty toenails. He was a recurring nighttime intruder, and that is frightening and unsettling. Let's turn to the verdict. The closing arguments were delivered on the Monday before Thanksgiving, and the jury was instructed by the judge to go start deliberations. And they didn't take maybe as long as some thought. What was your reaction to how soon they came back with a verdict? And and describe that scene. I had in my mind that there didn't seem to be a lot to deliberate. I actually think more than 10 hours was almost a little too long. When you say there wasn't a lot to deliberate, what do you mean? Linda Donikoski made a fine job of uh, presenting her case. I think the best thing the defense tried was putting Travis McMichael up on the stand with some well-rehearsed thoughts about law enforcement training that didn't hold up on cross-examination from Linda Donikoski. I think she proved that Greg and Travis McMichael had no reason to believe that Ahmaud Arbery had committed a crime. Travis McMichael left his five-year-old son in the living room of their house, grabbed a shotgun, Greg McMichael grabs a 357, they jump in a pickup truck and chase this man. They said, we want to talk to you. They've got guns in their hands. Linda Donikowski says, this is America. Nobody has to talk to somebody if they don't want to. He was not obliged to do that. I mean, common sense tells you, you pull up in a truck on somebody who's like a pedestrian who's out for a jog. I mean, I don't know, are any of you runners? You ever had a strange truck pull up and have some people start yelling at you? All three of these defendants 
did everything they did based on assumptions. Not on facts, not on evidence, on assumptions that took a young man's life. And that is why we are here. This was the uh, most emotionally draining uh, thing I've ever done as a journalist. And, and, and let me preface that by saying that I, I would say that the, uh, the parents, Mr. Marcus Arbery and Ms. Wanda Cooper-Jones were the faces of courage. Nobody, I say this was emotionally draining for me to see these images of their son over and over again and to hear what the defense said about their son. It was just a anguish and grief. This was a grueling episode for them. When you see your baby kid going down like that, you just never imagine nothing like that to happen in this little town like this here. I just want everybody to know Ahmad was a good young man, never was disrespectful, and all old men had to do is talk to them. But you don't go talk to no kid, tell me you're gonna blow his head off. They got to understand Ahmad was a young kid. 25 years old, he began to live his life, and they robbed him of his life. You know, this was six weeks of, of, of a trial. I saw the video when it came out. I took a couple of more looks at it. It is a stark, the killing, that's what it is, the killing of Maude Arbery. Well, regardless what the jury would have found, Travis McMichael killed Maude Arbery with, with a shotgun loaded with buckshot. That video was played a dozen times, two dozen. It's etched in my mind, but seeing it over and over again um, didn't make it any easier to watch. This is a man getting killed right before your eyes. Where were you, Larry, when the verdict came in? Were you in the, in the courtroom itself or were you in this uh, holding area where other people were observing the trial? I was in the jury assembly room. I mean, this thing holds a couple hundred people and it was almost completely full. In the Superior Court of Glenn County, state of Georgia, the state of Georgia versus Travis McMichael, case number CR000433. And it erupted in cheers when the malice murder was announced for Travis McMichael. I'm gonna ask that whoever just made an outburst be removed from the court, please. If you feel like you need to make a comment or otherwise demonstrate with respect to the verdict, I do ask that you step out of the courtroom now. Judge Walmsley restored order. Everybody remained quiet for the remainder of the readings. Count two, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count three, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count four, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, I'm curious kind of what you were looking for as those verdicts were read. Where was your attention? On the judge, I was looking around at uh, the people around me and basically I was looking in front of my computer. I had my laptop there with me. I was focused and guilty, guilty, guilty was my lead. And that's what I wrote that Linda Donikowski had made her case. So I hit send. I basically called my editor, said the story's there, and then I went out into the lobby where 
The first person I saw, Mr. Arbery, was already out there, Mr. Marcus Arbery. He was just crying with, it was certainly a moment of redemption for him. Go, Marcus. Number one, I want to give all glory to God. Yes. Because that's who made all this possible. Yes, it is. I want to thank all y'all people, all the support y'all gave us. Yeah. We conquered that lynch mob. Yeah. It was just too much going on, a cacophony of people celebrating the verdict. There were hundreds, a thousand people out front. What was their reaction? Cheers, tears, prayers, a jubilation. To tell you the truth, I never saw this day back in 2020. Mm -hmm. I never thought this day would come, but God is good. Yes, he is. And I just want to tell everybody, thank you, thank you for those who marched, those who, who prayed, most of all, the, the ones who prayed. Yes, Lord. Yes. Thank you, God. Yes, Lord. Thank you. And now, you know him as Ahmad. I know him as Quez. Yes. He will now rest in peace. Yes. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I get to my car, and uh, an old buddy of mine, Charles Baldwin, he's, he's a black guy. We've been friends for a long time. But just to run across him at that moment was was kind of wild. He just happened to be standing outside my car. He was driving by. He runs a landscape company himself. And he was driving by and decided to get out, and he just heard about it, wanted to, you know, join whatever was going on over there. So it was just cool seeing him. We we hugged each other, and I said, it's good to see you, Charles. He's a Brunswick native, grew up around here, started out on the shrimp boats down on the on the East River in Brunswick. That was just a, a, a cool moment to, to see Charles there. And what did he have to say about the verdict? I knew they would get the verdict right. He always calls me brother. He said, I knew they'd get the verdict right, brother. I knew this is what we were going to have. Where does the community of Brunswick and Glen County at large kind of go from here. What, do you see sort of tangible changes as a result of all this? We've always thought of ourselves as a pretty progressive community, and we are. A lot of us took a second look and wondered if we've done enough. I think we're taking some of that to heart. I hope we're a better community. I hope this is, if nothing else, um, this tragedy has, has brought us closer together. Well, you know, that, that brings up a great question. This is one case, right? This trial happened during uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial when there were, he was acquitted. And so we have this conviction. And so what does this mean for race relations in, in the South? What does it mean politically or culturally uh, for where we go from here? I sure hope it, it means we, we, we move forward and that this is the 21st century and that we're not carrying as much of that baggage with us and into this, this next century. It's about time. I'm a Southerner all my life and, and proud of being a Southerner. I love this place. It's, it's exotic. It's strange and it's beautiful. And in times of reckoning, <laughs> we've always come up short. It seems, especially my demographic. So many times, so many times, the South says one thing but does another. This time, we did pretty much what everybody's saying we wanted to do and what was supposed to be the right thing. Mayor Cornell Harvey, the Brunswick mayor, Brunswick's first black mayor, he's uh, 
finishing up his second term. He's like one of the first people I saw and I went and shook hands with him. And he said, Larry, we proved to America that you can get justice in a small Southern town. And he said, we proved justice is colorblind. Now we are angry, yes we are angry. We, we, we are hurting, yes we are hurting because something bad has happened here. However, you know, we still have to look for the greater good. We have to also uh, ensure that we trust justice will be will be served. We trust the fact that the laws in America are, are not tainted against anyone. Together, we can do things better. And I really believe that, and I believe the people in Brunswick are really trying to say that too. I'll tell you what I did say to Mayor Harvey. I said, Mayor, my people finally didn't let your people down. <laughs> and he said, it's okay, man, because I was getting a little emotional. And he said, it's okay, man. I know. I know. And I hope we've learned something from this that will stick with us. Thanks for listening to Georgia Today this year. The podcast is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Jess Mador is our producer. Our engineers are Jesse Nyswanger and Jake Cook. You can keep up with Georgia Today by subscribing to the show at gpb.org or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.